It's Sunday morning. Time for the Great Outdoors with Charlie Potter. Brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Good morning. Welcome to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio and Thank you for joining me as we've moved into June. Hard to believe that we've already knocked off two of the best months to be in the outdoors. I'm going to start off with an issue I talked about a couple weeks ago, and I heard a number of you asking questions about it, so I wanted to revisit it for a second. And the topic really is, High energy prices, why are they terrible for wildlife? So I mentioned a couple weeks ago that this term climate crisis is, um, has created a wildlife crisis, but not for the reasons of the climate. And I have said all along on this show, ever since we began to go from global warming to climate change, that the, my job is to, I believe, present information, and you're all plenty smart, <laughs> can make up your own minds what you think about it. And I will continue to do that without hopefully giving a bias on, on my side uh, one way or the other. Uh, that's my objective, and if I fail on that, I'm sorry, and please let me know. So this term climate crisis, which now is, is the term instead of climate change, we have climate crisis. Well, I'd like to flip it on its upside down a bit and say what we really are doing with our energy situation is we are creating a wildlife management crisis. And let me repeat that because that's where some of the confusion was from a couple of weeks ago or, or questions at least. High energy costs are terrible for wildlife. They're terrible for people driving to and from work. They're terrible for people taking vacations. And in a bit, I'll talk about what some of the impacts are on higher energy costs already on the, on the outdoor industry. But high energy costs are, are just very, very detrimental to wildlife management. And why is that? Because so much of wildlife are dependent on private land. We, we like to think, oh, we've got all these public lands. Well, Illinois is about 90 Nine or 98 percent privately owned. Iowa the same. Indiana the same. You have to until you get out west, northern Wisconsin. There's a lot of public land up there, but a lot of that's not managed for anything. You have to get out west to get sizable chunks of public land, and and those lands aren't managed. So wildlife are dependent on private lands, whether it be in Montana on grain farms. And ranches, whether it be in Illinois on grain farms, whether it be in the South, Mississippi Delta, wherever it might be, wildlife are really dependent on private lands for, uh, for their populations. Private landowners spend a great deal of money managing wildlife. And they don't do that by accident. They do that because they either love the wildlife on their property and just want to have them, or they do that because there's an economic opportunity to be realized by having abundant wildlife populations. So the farmer 
who would leave an end row of corn or an end row of beans or maybe has a 100-acre field and he'd leave an acre or two on the margins for deer and turkey and quail and pheasants and grouse, that individual now is faced with input costs that are approaching 40% higher than at any time they have ever seen. And yes, they also are looking at record high grain prices for wheat, corn, soybeans, and corn being the driver primarily of, of wildlife foods across America, except in the wheat belt of the upper Midwest, and corn is rapidly taking hold up there. And looking at an input cost increase of closing in on 50%, an all-time record grain prices, it's going to take a landowner who really, really, really wants to have wildlife on his property to leave those margins or leave sizable acreage for wildlife. They're not going to do it. They can't afford to do it. The economic pressures are significant. Same is true of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres in America that are managed for recreation, primarily hunting. The costs of doing that have gone up so greatly that the costs, therefore, of leaving the crops in the fields wholesale is, is unaffordable. So not only are the costs of hunting leases going to go up, the costs of membership in private clubs are going to go up, and the public lands are not going to see the amount of wildlife food plots planted because the state's don't have it in their budget for a 50% increase. And a lot of public lands in the Midwest and the West and the South are done on a, uh, a contract basis. So the state of Illinois, for example, didn't put in their budget a 50% higher input cost. So chances are there's going to be less land planted everywhere. That means less land flooded for waterfowl. That means less foraging habitat for turkey and deer and quail and pheasants. And that means less edges into fields for nesting habitat and, and overwintering habitat. So my comment of a couple of weeks ago is high energy prices are devastating for wildlife. And no matter how you want to spin it, high energy prices are the result of not enough energy being produced. It's pretty plain and simple. We can cast around and say why we're not producing enough energy, but we went from a period of energy abundance just a few years ago, a very few years ago, to one now of widespread energy shortages. And so regardless of your political beliefs, it makes no difference at all. The fact is, Energy costs are soaring, and private landowners, federal government, and states do not have the wherewithal to afford to leave vast tracts of habitat that is managed for wildlife because the costs of obtaining and planting that habitat are so high. So it is a crisis for wildlife. And I, and I want to emphasize this. You don't, I don't think you hear this anywhere. That's not my emphasis. My emphasis is high energy costs derail wildlife management. 
And this claim of a climate crisis, whether it's true or not, has the actions that are taken have enormous consequences to everyday life. And again, I'm not talking about going to and from work or turning on the electricity in your house. I'm talking everyday life for wildlife. And we are kidding ourselves if we don't think that wildlife populations, whether they be game birds or non-game birds, from robins to everybody needs have every species needs habitat. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that there's going to be more habitat available because of high energy prices. There's going to be a lot less habitat available, and there's only one thing that can happen. A lot less food means less birds, less, less animals. It's, it's that simple. And some may be saying, as, and they have, well, you get higher energy price and everything costs so much, landowners won't go and plant the marginal lands. They'll just leave them, let them go back wild. Well, that doesn't happen because of the federal crop insurance program protects landowners, by and large, who have been farming marginal lands. And the other thing is just letting it go native. Well, that means a lot of weeds. Every state, every county has weed uh, jurisdictions, weed laws. You can't just let 40 acres be abandoned and, and become full of noxious weeds. You've got to clean it up. It's law. So you have to go in and plant it. People aren't going to do that. I, I think the whole thing spells a time when, if this continues, we're going to have a real crisis with wildlife because of the food source and the habitat available. That's the story nobody talks about. When I come back on the Great Outdoors show, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I started on last week, and that is on ballot measures across the country for open space. And I also want to talk about what I promised I would with salmon on the West Coast. So I'll be back in just a moment, and I've got more in store in the remaining time. Thanks so much for being with me, and I hope that this description of how I see high energy prices as a cost to wildlife resonates uh, with a lot of you because it's, it is, it resonates not only, I mean, it's a fact not only for people, it's a fact for animals and birds. It's bad for everyone. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voices Chicago and America, 720 WGN. And first, a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland Chevrolet dealers. In the field, hunters need to be alert, sense the environment around them and know exactly where they are, communicate seamlessly with their dogs. And when it comes to pickup trucks, you want the same qualities. The all-new Chevy Silverado comes with an available 4G Wi-Fi hotspot for seamless communication. It's designed to handle the toughest loads with advanced trailering technology, tough on the road and off. And the all-new design gives you more cargo space than the competition. Chevy Silverado is the most dependable, longest-lasting, full-size pickup on the road. Plus, there's never been a better time to see your local Chevy dealer about the Big Fix lease. It's an amazing lease deal that can lower your monthly payments and give you more Chevy, all for less money. That's a treasure hunt. So head to your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and see why Chevy is the number one best-selling brand in Chicagoland, now eight years running. It's Charlie Potter and the Great Outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. I hope you're enjoying the show. I promised that I would talk a little bit about ballot measures coming up in 
uh, November, open space ballot measures across the uh, country uh, often take place, and by and large, they are almost universally approved. We have a couple big ones coming up in northeastern Illinois, and I'm going to hopefully have in the coming weeks individuals talk about the importance of the ballot measures for, in particular, uh, for Cook County that's coming up and why, why it's so important. Um, but we have a quality of life around the Chicago area that is greatly enhanced by having the largest forest preserve system in the country. I believe Cook County is the largest forest preserve system in the country. The open space that Kane, Cook, Will, and Lake Counties have created through the years because of forest preserves is, well, it's, it's unprecedented uh, around urban areas and in urban areas in America. New York has Central Park, and that's about it. Just think about all the public lands, forest preserve lands in Cook County. And one of the things that has to happen is these lands have to be managed. Just securing them is, is only the small part. The legacy cost of managing public lands, managing trails, managing parks, managing all the recreational opportunities that we have uh, is considerable. And so I will be talking more about the ballot measures that are coming our way. And they may be coming in a way at a time that a lot of people, a lot of us are feeling, I'm through. I, I, I'm paying too much in taxes. Uh, my expenses have gone up tremendously. I'm not going to add a higher tax burden to, to, to myself and my family through property tax increases and on these open space measures. Uh, I, I think that time and again, that has been proven, take the long view. The long view works and if we had not done what we've done over the past 75 years around Chicago, we would have a vastly, vastly uh, less attractive place to live. And, and we all can see the lakefront and realize the lake is there. We didn't put it there, but we did keep our forest, we did keep our forest preserves from being developed, and that has greatly enhanced the quality of life in northeastern Illinois. So I'll have more on that, but it's coming in November. And for the, I think for the sake of all of us who live in this part of the world and want to have a high quality of life, it's something to pay attention to and hopefully, hopefully support. Uh, one of the things that caught my attention, as has caught America's attention, but mine a little bit differently, has, of course, been the fires in the West and um, in, in New Mexico, particularly in how early they are in the year, et cetera. Um, I refer back to a little bit of the belief that we are in such a 24-7 news cycle that we are aware of everything. We're aware of high waves in Alabama. We're aware of fires in the West. We're aware of storms in the Northeast. We're aware of tornadoes. There's, there's very few weather events that we are unaware of because of the 24-7 news cycle in the world in which we live. Fires in the West have been a part of life in the West since the beginning of time. Yes, the fires in New Mexico at this time of the year are unusual, much larger in scale. Uh, yes, the West has been and remains considerably drier than it has in, in recent years. But I think that there's much more to this. And we tend to focus on the immediate and the sensational. Mark Reisner wrote 
an incredibly good book called Cadillac Desert, which I I recommend to anybody uh, who cares, is interested in water in the West because it affects all of us in America. And and it's a it's a book based upon facts, data, and Mark Reisner, who unfortunately is deceased, made the case shockingly for a lot of people that the past hundred years in the American West were a period of abnormal moisture, and that from the 20s, 1910 through the 40s in particular, when the West was adjudicating and allocating all of its water, the Colorado River was at a significantly higher flow than it historically has been through maybe the millenniums before. That little tidbit, of course, is, has been ignored. And one of the reasons the Colorado is doesn't run to the Gulf of Mexico, I mean, doesn't run into the Sea of Cortez in Mexico anymore is because we take too much water out of it. We essentially dried it up. And we dried it up because we allocated water to municipalities and agriculture at a time of water abundance in the Colorado River Basin. And we didn't understand as we well as we do now, and we still have a lot to learn, that there are long-term cycles to water. Three and five years does not make up 100-year cycles or longer. And that the West primarily was settled during a period of time of unusual water abundance. And some listening may take exception to that. By saying that, please don't exception, take exception to me. Go read the book Cadillac Desert. And if you want to take exception, take exception there. But I think Mark Reisner is, is 100% correct in believing that we had a period of unusual abundance in the West for about 100 years and that things were not always this way and, in fact, more often than not, were not this way at all. So I would offer we, we have a lot to learn about water and the sensationalism of focusing on fires is easy, it's visual, it's horrible, it's absolutely terrible, but maybe it's a little bit out of context historically and and maybe we should we should look a little deeper before we start yelling uh, that this is a result of unprecedented. Because I think reality is going to show us it's not unprecedented at all. What is unprecedented is twenty four seven worldwide news. Thanks for being with me. Hope you've enjoyed the show. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voices Chicago and America seven twenty WGN.